For years, one of the most widely read books among Christians was Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's really too bad that more don't read the book today. It gives many moving accounts of men and women who down through the centuries have given their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a fact of human history that believers have often been persecuted, imprisoned, and martyred for their faithfulness to Christ and their refusal to compromise. And the day is coming when this is going to take place on a worldwide scale. We're told about it in Revelation chapter 13. So let's turn there together if you're not already there and follow along as I read verses 1 through 10, which we'll consider part of in this message, having already looked at the first four verses of this chapter. But we'll begin reading in verse 1. And I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a, blas- heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him Over every tribe, tongue, and nation, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the perseverance or patience and the faith of the saints." These verses tell us about a time in the future when this world will be dominated by a man and his world system which are so savage that they are both called the beast. According to verse 5, this reign of terror will last 42 months, which is the last half of the seven-year tribulation period. John describes this enemy of God and God's people as the beast. It begs the question, who or what is this beast? As we've seen in our last two messages of this series, the beast is both a system and a person. The description that John gives us in the early verses of this chapter is of the world system of the end times. But at the end of verse 4, the personal pronoun him appears... And personal pronouns are continually used after that. Verse 5 says he. Verse 6 says he. Verse 7 says him. Verse 8 says him. So the beast is the world system headed up by the Antichrist, just as the Third Reich was headed up by Hitler. 
This isn't by any means the first mention of this man in Scripture. Daniel the prophet tells us a great deal about him. In fact, he is such an important person to understand and be aware of that it seems safe to say that both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John taught about him regularly. What is my evidence for saying that? Well, for one thing, we know that the Apostle Paul was only allowed to be with the believers in Thessalonica for a very short time before being driven out of town. The book of Acts makes that clear. Very brief visit, and then he was driven out of town. What did he teach the believers about during that short time? One thing he taught them about was the Antichrist. How do we know that? Back up with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Right before 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to come back to this passage later in the message, but just to use it to make this one point for now. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. For the day of the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now watch this. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? That's a significant statement. Paul only spent a short period of time with the believers in Thessalonica, yet here he makes it clear that he made sure to teach them about this coming man of sin that we know as the Antichrist. That's how important Paul considered this topic. The Apostle John felt just as strongly about this subject. On your way back to Revelation 13, stop at 1 John chapter 2. After 1st and 2nd Peter, we have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. 1st John chapter 2, verse 18. John says, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Again, that's a significant statement. John says, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. You know this. You know all about this. They had heard it because this was evidently not an uncommon theme in the preaching and teaching of the first century. It is an extremely important subject to understand, and that's one of the reasons why I've had to spend three messages on the first ten verses of Revelation 13. Now let's go back to our text there in the book of Revelation. So the man described in the first 10 verses of Revelation 13 is no stranger to the student of Holy Scripture. He is mentioned in Daniel. He is mentioned by our Lord in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He is mentioned by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. He is mentioned by John in 1 John. And now he is here delineated or described in the book of Revelation. He will be Satan's consummate man 
in his attempt to thwart God's plan and usurp God's rule over planet earth. Don't ever forget, beloved, that Satan has always wanted to rival God. If you look at the passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah where the the fall of Satan is described, you will see Satan saying five times, I will be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times. And all of those statements are, in a sense, statements to rival God. God has his man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan will have his man, the beast of the last days, who is also known as Antichrist. What will this man do? Our text for this message helps us answer that question. Notice verse 5 of Revelation 13. John tells us that he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Notice how this verse begins. And he was given. That phrase is used four times in this little section of Revelation, and it communicates a very, very important point to us, namely that God is allowing this to happen. God is still in control when all of these things will unfold. Even though it will look like the Antichrist is in control, after all, he's the world ruler, the world leader, the fact of the matter is that God will still be sovereign. This will all be happening only because of divine permission. And that thought is emphasized four times in a little section of this, le- of this book. The end of verse 5 says, And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. The one giving this authority, authority is obviously God, because certainly Satan wouldn't limit the, his authority to a mere 42 months. Again, this is divine permission. Verse 7 begins with the phrase, It was granted to him. The middle of the verse says, And authority was given him. The Holy Spirit wants to make sure that we do not miss this point. God has not lost control. He is allowing these things to happen to fulfill his own divine purposes. And all of this will take place because of divine permission. The first thing mentioned that the Antichrist will be allowed to do is to utter great things and blasphemies. We saw this in our reading, quick reading of 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. This man will claim to be God, and he will demand to be worshipped as God. That is obviously a monumental claim, and it is utterly blasphemous. When will he begin to make such claims? He will begin to do so at the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation period. During the first three and a half years, he will be an important player on the world scene, but he will come across as a broker of peace. His true character comes out at the midpoint of the tribulation period. That's when I see him finally being able to kill God's two special witnesses described in chapter 11, verse 7. Then he will break his treaty with Israel and set himself up in the temple, claiming to be God. So his reign of terror will last for the final 42 months of the tribulation, which is three and a half years. Verse 6 says, Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. 
blasphemy is such a predominant characteristic of this man that it is mentioned again here in verse 6. He will blaspheme God, he will blaspheme God's name, and he will blaspheme those who dwell in heaven. When I read that, I asked myself a question. Why will the Antichrist blaspheme those who dwell in heaven? That's an interesting phrase. We understand, even though it's, it's uh, ludicrous, but we can understand, in a sense, him blaspheming God because he hates God. But blaspheming those who dwell in heaven? Against whom is this blasphemy directed? My guess, it's only a guess, my guess is that it is directed against the church that has been caught up into heaven. You see, somehow, this man is going to have to explain away what has happened when the church is caught up to be with the Lord, if in fact the the gathering together is pre-tribulational or even if it's mid-tribulational. Somehow he's going to have to explain away that event. Maybe he will blame the raptured saints for all the catastrophic judgments that will be unleashed on the earth during this time. That would be a convenient excuse to blame it on all these people who are gone and blaspheme those who dwell in heaven. Obviously, we don't know exactly what he's going to say or how this will play itself out, but the text clearly says he will blaspheme those who dwell in heaven. And it says it in a way to distinguish it from God. But the primary focus of his blasphemy will be God himself. Scripture makes that abundantly clear over and over again in so many passages. For example, back up with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, all the way back in Hebrew Scripture. Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then Daniel, chapter 7. This chapter tells us a great deal about the coming Antichrist, which is one of the reasons why John could say in 1 John 2, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, you know this. You've read it, you've studied it, you've heard it, you've seen it. Chapter 7, verse 8, says this, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked, plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking, now various English translations here, pompous words, great things, monstrous things. This little horn, if we had time to to prove it, it's easy to prove. This little horn is the Antichrist. And one of the primary things Daniel mentions about him is his mouth that speaks pompous words. In verse 11, again, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words, the great words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Again, Daniel emphasizes the pompous words, the the great, not great in a positive sense, the monstrous words that will flow out of the mouth of this agent of Satan. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, down a little bit later in this chapter. Then I Wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was exceedingly, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And I wanted to know about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn, which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words. Again, literally from Hebrew, great things whose appearance was greater than his fellows. 
You see, it seems that just about every time Daniel mentions this man, he says something about his grandiose words, his monstrous statements. Skip down to verse 24. Verse 24, the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law, and the saints will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Again, that's three and a half years. The Antichrist will utter arrogant words, monstrous words. But he won't be all talk. He will persecute the saints of the Most High, this verse says. Chapter 11 tells us some more of what he's going to do. Skip over just a few pages to chapter 11. Verse 36. Then the king, again, we don't have time to prove. It can easily be done. We can't demonstrate, but this... Verses 36 to the end of the chapter are are a reference to the man of sin, the Antichrist. Then the king shall do according to his own will. That is a reminder that this man will be an absolute dictator who rules with self-centered motives. He will have his way. He will not recognize any restraints, any law, or any authority higher than himself. And the Apostle Paul refers to him in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He refers to him, interestingly, as the man of lawlessness. Lawlessness. He won't recognize any laws. Human laws, divine laws, doesn't matter. He'll be utterly lawless. He will make all the decisions. In fact, he will rule with such authority that he demands every person to take his mark. As we see in the book of Revelation. Verse 36 continues. It says... He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. Now think about that. This man will be an egomaniac, exalting himself above every God. The God of Christianity, the God of Islam, the God of Judaism, the God of whatever. He'll exalt himself above every God. Verse 36 says, and he shall speak. Here we go again. Marvelous or monstrous things against the God of gods. Beloved, it is clear, I I hope you can see, it's clear from all of these statements that the Antichrist will be a blasphemer without equal. Now we've heard, we've all heard, either personally or read or seen news clips, we've heard people blaspheme in some some uh, remarkable ways, not remarkable in a positive sense. But it will pale in comparison to to the way this man will blaspheme. He will blaspheme in ways that are without precedent. As I've mentioned, this Hebrew word marvelous or or monstrous means astonishing. It'll be astonishing to hear what comes out of his mouth. The intensity of his blasphemy is unparalleled. Verse 36 concludes, And he shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. In other words, he'll only be allowed to prosper until God's chastening process of Israel is done and complete. He thinks he's great, and from a human standpoint he will be, but in one sense he's really only a puppet in the hands of Almighty God to accomplish God's purposes. Verse 37 says, He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, 
nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. The phrase, the desire of women, is one that commentators have wrestled about, wrestled through, and given a lot of comments. It probably has, we can't say dogmatically, but it probably has reference to the Messiah in this sense. It was the desire of all Jewish women to give birth to the Messiah. So in that sense, he was called the desire of women. So this is saying, if that's what it's referring to, it's saying that he will have no regard for the true Messiah. That's why he's called anti-Christ, anti-Messiah. He'll be an absolute atheist and will place himself as God. He will require Israel to worship him. When they refuse, he will persecute them mercilessly. Our text in Revelation 13 indicates that he will be worshipped by multitudes of people on this planet. Antichrist will be the ultimate man. Although he won't worship God, there will be something that he does worship. In a sense, every human being worships something. What will he worship? Verse 38 tells us, it says, But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. This man will have a perverted worship of military power and war. You see, whatever a man gives his abilities, his efforts, his time, and his resources to is the God of that man. And the Antichrist will be devoted to one thing, the conquest of the world. That will be his God. And this verse says those who help him will be rewarded with either land or positions of rulership. But to obtain these, people will have to sell their souls in devotion to this satanically controlled individual. Now back to our text in Revelation 13. So John tells us in verse 7 of Revelation 13, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Daniel 7.23 says, He will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. Daniel 7.25 says, He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And of course, in that context, the saints would be a reference to Jewish saints, Jewish people. That's why Jesus warned the Jews in Matthew 24, 15 through 21, when he said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, flee to the mountains and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world. The fact that Jesus in that text says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, tells us the focus of his instruction is Jewish people because they will be the primary focus of Antichrist's persecution. It's going to be an awful time for the saints. Now, it's obvious that this man will persecute all saints, anyone who comes to faith in Christ during the tribulation. But I think it's safe to say that the Jewish saints will be especially targeted. We just heard Jesus' words in Matthew 24. 
And if that is the case, then what Jesus taught in Matthew 25 makes even more sense. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go back to Matthew chapter 25 for just a second. (coughs) This is a section of Jesus' teaching that is often pulled out of the context of end times, unfortunately, and therefore it's used to teach a lot of things it really doesn't teach. We need to keep it in the context of end times because that's how Jesus taught it. Matthew 24 and 25 are a unit. The Olivet Discourse, all about the end times. From reading through chapter 24, we can see that the Jews are going to be the special target of the Antichrist. We saw the same thing when we went through Revelation 12, where the dragon persecutes the woman Israel with venomous hatred. So that, that leads to a question. Who will be willing to help the Jewish saints during this awful time? Here's the answer. Only those who know Christ as personal Lord and Savior. And in light of that, notice Jesus' words here in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. Notice that. This is second coming. He has been talking in chapter 24 about the tribulation. And He says in 24, 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, sun will be dark and moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from heaven. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. So Jesus said His second coming to the earth is immediately after the tribulation. And here He says in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. He's sitting on the throne of His glory because this is now kingdom. All the nations, all the Gentiles will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now notice, the people in this judgment are people who have just been living on planet earth during the tribulation. This is not the great white throne judgment. This isn't a gathering of all people who have ever lived. This is a special group of people or a particular group of people. All the Gentiles who have survived the tribulation period. They are at this judgment. And he says, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Who are these brethren of Christ's? They are the Jewish believers who will be ruthlessly persecuted during the last half of the tribulation period. And those who aid them, those who assist them, those who minister to them will show by their actions that they are true believers in the Lord Jesus. Flip that coin over. Those who refuse to aid them will show by their actions that they are not believers in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus adds verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? 
Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In context, this judgment makes total sense in the last days. During the last days, the true spiritual condition of people will be known, can be known by one thing. One thing. By how they relate to the persecuted Jewish believers. That says it all. That's why Jesus can say what he does regarding this future judgment, which will take place right after the tribulation period and leading into the kingdom. Now back to our text in Revelation 13. Verse 8 tells us, All who dwell on the earth will worship him. This is the beast, the, the Antichrist. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All the earth dwellers will worship the Antichrist. We've seen this phrase several times in our study of the book of Revelation. All who dwell on the earth. All, that entire phrase is a reference to one group of people, namely unbelievers. They are earth dwellers. Earth dwellers. They have no interest in heaven. They have no interest in God. They have no regard for Christ. They are earth dwellers. This earth is their home, and they don't want anything to do with the things of God or the things of Christ. Therefore, they will gladly worship the Antichrist, but not the elect. Not the elect. They they won't worship the Antichrist. Those whose names are written in the book of life will not worship him. Verse 7, it says, It was granted to him to overcome the saints. That means he will be able to kill them. But he won't be victorious over them spiritually. Because although he will take their lives, he can't take their souls. They belong to the Lamb who was slain. And they will worship no one but him. This is an encouraging note of victory in the midst of this depressing description of Antichrist's reign of terror. And then verse 9 says this, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. As you know, that is an attention-getting statement to point out the importance of what is about to be said. This same phrase appears seven times earlier in the book of Revelation. It occurs at the end of the messages to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. However, the wording is slightly different this time. Do you know what's missing? In Revelation 2 and 3, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But here it doesn't say anything about churches. Why? Could it be that the church is not going to be here during this time? Could this be another indication of a pre-tribulation rapture? I think it is. At least an indication. Not, not you know, full proof, but an indication. We know there are going to be believers alive during this time because as we saw back in chapter 7 of Revelation, Jews and Gentiles will be saved during the tribulation period. How should they respond to all the persecution that will be taking place on the planet? This is a practical question. Should they join together and fight? Should they form some kind of army, you know, like a Christian army or a spiritual army? Absolutely not. Verse 10 says this. 
He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. What, a, what does this verse mean? There are a couple ways to take these statements. Commentators are divided over it. But either way you take them, let me just say this, either way you take them, they clearly are an encouragement from God to believers of that time to faithfully persevere through whatever comes their way. So how, how do we take these? Well, one way to take these statements is to see them as a promise from God of divine retribution and, and revenge. In other words, the Antichrist and his cohorts who will put believers into prison and will kill them with a sword, will themselves be judged by God and killed. Therefore, believers need to persevere and trust God, commit themselves and trust themselves to God during this awful reign of terror. Another way to take these statements is to see them as an exhortation to not fight back against the Antichrist and his minions. The New American Standard Bible implies this by rendering the first phrase, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. In other words, if God has ordained that you're going to be imprisoned by the forces of the Antichrist, then that's what you must endure. Don't fight it. Don't resist it. In fact, if you do fight it, and you kill one or some of the soldiers of the Antichrist, you yourself will be killed. That's what the last phrase is referring to. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. God doesn't want you to fight and resist. He wants you to patiently endure it, and he will reward you. That's why the last phrase says, here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. So either way you take these statements, the point is the same. It's an encouragement from God to believers of that time to faithfully persevere through whatever is thrown at them. Trust God and know that his judgment will come. It would be an understatement to say that it would not be a pleasant experience to be on earth during this time. It is possible that we will be, depending on the timing of the rapture or the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. But I do believe that the evidence points to the view that we will not be here. Let me show you one very important piece of evidence in 2 Thessalonians 2 as we conclude this message and wind down. So back to where we were earlier, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. That's a long phrase describing what we usually uh, designate with, with one word, one term, the rapture. So concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. So concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the clouds, not talking about him coming to the earth like Matthew 24, coming to bring in the kingdom. Concerning that, and our gathering together unto him, not him coming to the earth to us, us gathering to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ or the day of the Lord had come. Now, the day of the Lord, you you need background from Hebrew Scripture 
and not only Hebrew Scripture, but elsewhere in the New Testament, the day of the Lord is clearly a reference to the day of the Lord's judgment on planet Earth. The day of the Lord, you could say, this phrase was used several times in Hebrew Scripture, to a coming judgment of God, but the ultimate fulfillment of that phrase, the day of the Lord, is what we would call the tribulation period. So you could just kind of have that in your mind. Now do you see what is going on here? Because the Thessalonians were experiencing persecutions and afflictions, they began to believe the teaching of some who were saying that they had missed the gathering together of believers in the air and that they were in the day of the Lord's judgment. They were in the tribulation. No wonder they were shaking in mind and trouble. I would be too if I thought I, was, I had missed the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air and was in the middle of the day of the Lord's wrath. So once again, Paul sets the record straight. He assures them they are not in the day of the Lord, and then he tells them why. Verse 3, he says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin or lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition. Paul says there are two things that will take place before the day of the Lord's wrath hits planet earth. One, a great falling away, and two, the man of sin will be revealed. Those are the two things. I personally believe that the first item is a reference to, or at least connected with, the rapture of the church. Let me explain what I mean. The Greek word that is translated falling away here in this verse is the Greek word apostasia. It comes from a Greek word, aphistemi, which literally means to remove. I believe, personally, that's the way Paul is using the word here. The day of the Lord's wrath will not come until two things happen. The removal of the church and the revelation of the man of sin. Now, even if you take this word apostasia, not in that way, but to refer to a worldwide religious falling away, which is probably the majority view, That really still doesn't change things because how is that going to happen unless all true believers are taken out of this world and there's nothing to prevent this worldwide falling away? So the first thing that must happen before the day of the Lord's wrath hits this earth is the great apostasy or the great removal, whichever way you want to take this term. The second thing that must happen before the day of the Lord's wrath hits this earth is the man of sin must be revealed. Who is the man of sin? It's obviously a reference to the Antichrist. So here in verse 3, Paul says, The day of the Lord's wrath will not begin until the man of sin is revealed. How will he be revealed? When he signs the seven-year treaty or agreement or covenant with Israel, spoken of very clearly in Daniel 9, it'll be obvious he's the one. Anyone who knows Daniel 9 will know he's the one. And that's what Paul is saying. So he assures the Thessalonians that they have not entered the day of the Lord's wrath because, number one, the great apostasy or great gathering has not taken place, and two, the Antichrist has not been revealed. It is after these two things that the day of the Lord's wrath begins. Those who will be here will see the Antichrist break his treaty with Israel and demand worship. Paul says in verse 4, 
the, the, the man who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Antichrist will be the most powerful man ever to live. No, no question. But he will be consumed simply by the breath of the Lord's mouth and destroyed by the brightness of his coming. And if I'm wrong about the timing of the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, and we're still here, even if we die, we won't be defeated, right? We will be victors through our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you that we are ultimately victors. That is clearly the message of the book of Revelation. It has difficult passages, passages that aren't aren't always easy to understand. And so we must always approach that book but all of your word with humility. But it is very clear. One, one message is unmistakable in that book, and that is your people, those who are in Christ, will ultimately be victorious. We will win. Thank you for putting us on the winning team. Thank you for letting us be on your team. Thank you for our victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his exalted and powerful name, so powerful that he will consume his his enemy, the Antichrist, with simply the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. We long for the day when he receives the glory he deserves. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen.